This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Scott Bertram. We're joined by Dennis Dunn, renowned barebow archery hunter, outdoor author. We'll talk about that in a bit. He's on Hillsdale's campus as a featured speaker as part of the Nimrod Education Center Speaker Series. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. My, my great pleasure. Excited to have some conversation today about your experience and uh, later about your book and what you're doing here on campus with the Nimrod Education Center. Very open general question first, which is where and how did you develop your passion for what you do and your passion for the outdoors, your passion for wildlife? Well, you know, I never had anybody in my family to mentor me into hunting. But when I was five years old, my mother, who had gone to Stanford University and took archery as her athletic activity there, she brought home a toy set of bow and arrows from Bartell's drugstore. And um, uh, they had rubber cups on the ends of the arrows. She glued the concentric ring target that came with the set on the back of the bathroom door and told me if I closed all the other doors in the hallway, I could shoot down the hallway. Well, that really fascinated me. And at age seven, she sent me off to to uh, summer camp where they had real bows and arrows with steel tips, and I got addicted to the sport of archery. So it was sort of the back door of archery that uh, led me into hunting. I, as a young lad waiting for an, a driver's license to emancipate me at age 16, <laughs> I would fantasize about how cool it must have been to be a, an Indian in the old Rocky Mountain West and sneak up through the forest on a bull elk or a big buck deer with a bow and arrow in a hand. And, so finally, when I was 16 years old, I drove over to eastern Washington, where I thought all the deer lived. The mule deer were over there. I didn't realize we had Columbia black-tailed deer in the thick vegetation all around us in Seattle. <laughs> but having said that, I never took my first big-game animal until I was out of college, about 24 years of age. Although at age 10, I started hunting small game with a bow and, and took I don't know how many squirrels at that time, small game. But anyway, that's how I got started. Talk more about your uh, your big game in a moment, but in, throughout your career, it's it's bare bow, uh, and you talk about being a purely instinctive shooting. What does that mean compared to what people might 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 picture? Or maybe it is what they're picturing, but what what does that mean? Well, bare bow is archery lingo for purely instinctive shooting. What it literally says is that the bows are bare of any sighting devices. No yardage sight pins or other aiming devices attached to the riser of the bow above the arrow rest. 99% of all bow hunters use yardage sight pins. A 20-yard pin, 30-yard pin, 50-yard pin that stick out above the arrow rest. And since an arrow travels an arc, um, not traveling nearly as fast as a bullet, why you've got to get your elevation right or your arrow's going to fly underneath the target or over the top of it. And so instinctive shooting is is a learned skill. It's it's done by instinct, but the more you practice, the more you shoot like that, the more confidence you can develop at hitting the targets you, you want to hit. Now that all depends on what kind of a bow you're using, mm -hmm. what, you, what your effective range is. Um, if you hunt with a traditional bow, the way I have more than half my life, that meaning a long bow or a recurve, um, I won't consider even taking a shot at uh, more than about 30 yards. And I'm a lot more comfortable uh, at 20 yards or less. At 20 yards, I can hit a salad plate uh, nine times out of 10. At 30 yards, a dinner plate maybe four times out of five <laughs> on a good day. Uh, but that's why you don't push your luck with that kind of a thing. And because uh, for every ethical hunter, the main thing is to make a clean, quick 
kill, and man is the only predator in, in the prey-predator drama that gives a hoot whether or not mm -hmm. the animal suffers before it dies. The lions, the coyotes, the wolves, the bears, they could care less whether the animal suffers, and oftentimes they'll start um, feasting on their downed animal before they bother to even kill it, and uh, nothing could be more cruel than that. I've read you say that you learn to enjoy the challenge of willfully limiting yourself to a weapon of limited range in order to make the contest more equal. You just told us how close you like to be when you take your shot. Why do you think that you drifted in that direction? A hunter wants there to be a challenge. That's what excites him. That's what he lives for. He wants to get as close to nature as he can, and he wants to it to be really not a test of his marksmanship as much as his hunting skills, a test of his skills to see how close he can get to the animal. And a lot of times a bow hunter, especially a tra traditional bow hunter like myself, where you have to get within that 50 mile, red, excuse me, 50 yard uh, red alert zone where the animal's instincts, if you can survive closer to a trophy big game animal than 50 yards for more than a few seconds, you're doing well. Of course, the wind can always give you away, mm -hmm. but their sense, basically hunting boils down to a contest between two sets of instincts. And man flatters himself by thinking that his rational intelligence gives him a big advantage uh, over the, his quarry. But the fact of the matter is, the senses of sight, hearing, and smell of his quarry are so much keener than his own that more often than not, they're more than enough to overmatch your intelligence. So the experienced hunter learns the hard way that uh, it's a real challenge to get close and take the life of a, a big, game, big game animal. And the trophy hunter, is he wants to match wits, so to speak, against the bucks or the bulls or the rams near the end of their life because they're the ones that, are the, that offer the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. He willfully, you know, and, and trophy hunters get a bum rap. The anti-hunters, I think trophy hunters are the lowest form of human life. The scum of the earth, I've been called that to my face. But the fact is, the trophy hunters ought to be considered the saint in the, the saints of the hunting world because they voluntarily leave home and go afield knowing they're not interested in shooting any of the women or children or any of the young males. They're only interested in trying to find a mature bull or buck or ram near the end of his life, and those, of course, are the animals that didn't get old by being dumb. <laughs> They're the ones who have have refined to a fairly well their instincts for escaping danger and all the predators that are always seeking to kill them. So uh, when a bow hunter puts limits on himself by choice of weapon, especially, say, a traditional bow rather than a modern compound bow, which can reach out two or three times as far accurately if you use yardage sight pins as a as a traditional bow, um, they're doing it because of the challenge. They don't come home su successful with an animal very often, but when you have a success and you limit yourself that much, the successes are, are really sweet. Far between, but sweet. <laughs> Talking with Dennis Dunn, he's on Hillsdale's campus as part of the speaker series at the Nimrod Education Center, renowned bear bow archery hunter and outdoor author, including his book, which is called Bear Bow. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So big game. You are the first ever hunter to achieve the Bear Bow Super Slam. Tell us what that is 
and how long it took you to accomplish. Well, in the North American hunting world, the Super Slam refers to the 29 huntable big game species uh, that are legally huntable and recognized by the Boone and Crockett uh, Club and the Pope and Young Club. Pope and Young is the archer's uh, equivalent of the Boone and Crockett Club. Only animals taken with a bow and arrow can be entered. But they have to meet a certain minimum score, which means a mature male uh, near the end of his life. Uh, and uh, uh, bare bow hunting is the ultimate challenge because you have to get so close and you have to be a good shot and you have to aim instinctively. But I remember my dad was a high jumper in college and he always used to tell me about what it was like to set the bar one inch higher than he'd ever jumped before. And he might train or practice for weeks or months before he finally cleared that extra inch. Hmm. For me, it's always been a question of setting goals for myself. At first, goals that I thought I might be able to accomplish uh, with some effort and later on, more ambitious goals, but every time I would have a, a success, um, your confidence builds. It's like a series of stepping stones. And finally, I came to realize that uh, that if I was willing to work hard enough and believe in myself and make the sacrifices necessary, there was virtually no uh, goal that I couldn't achieve with uh, help from on high. And I have to say, the good Lord has given me so much providential assistance. He saved my life at least half a dozen times in the wilderness. Incredible situations where an independent observer watching it all on a screen would say, that guy's a goner. And yet the good Lord decided to intervene and save my life. So the super slam was something I never had as a goal until six years before I finally got there. When a buddy put the idea in my bonnet <laughs> that I had a chance to to do something nobody had ever done before, which, and I asked him, what, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, you don't use sights, do you? And I said, no. He said, well, nobody's ever taken all 29 species bow. That's a pretty powerful uh, thought to put in your brain to think that maybe you have a chance to do something nobody in history has ever done before. Mm -hmm. So that got a hold of me and it became an obsession. And six years later, I took my 29th species, which was the Alaskan brown bear, Earlier that year, I took my grizzly, which was on my seventh hunt for grizzly, and darned if the good Lord didn't put me in the right place at the right time to waylay a 28-year-old male um, who only had one canine left in his mouth, mm. and he turned out to be the world record with a bow and arrow. You wrote a book about the process, though, which people can check out. It's called Bear Bow, an archer's fair chase taking of North America's Big Game 29. What kind of stories will people find inside that book? 104 stories of adventure, misadventure, and miracles, all autobiographical and true, spanning 40 years of my life, pursuing that goal I never knew I had until six years before I finally got there. The book is also a fine art book, though, illustrated by two of the best wildlife artists in the country, Hayden Lampson and his son, Dallin. Uh, Hayden painted for almost two years, nearly full time for that book, without a penny's worth of compensation. He published through my book the first ever artist series of the North American Big Game 29. Hmm. And his son contributed 38 black and white fine line graphite pencil drawings to the book. One thing you won't find in that book is any photographs of me and a dead animal at the recovery site because I wanted to create a book almost as enjoyable for the non-hunting public since the non-hunters, as opposed to the antis uh, or hunters, constitute about 77, 78% of the electorate. And uh, whether we hunters like it or not, the non-hunter will eventually determine our fate at the ballot box. I don't know if this story is in the book, so I'm going to ask you to tell now, which is the 
August 2020 story of your bison harvest. Well, that was the year of COVID, mm -hmm. and uh, it was felicitous, I guess, that I happened that year, actually in 2019, to purchase a, an Arizona commissioner's tag for bison. There's very few opportunities in North America to hunt free-ranging bison. There are five states that offer lottery draws, but your chance of being drawn on a lottery draw are fewer than uh, half of 1%. And I knew at my age, because I wanted to try and upgrade that species, well, before old age knocked me out of the arena into a grave or a wheelchair, I, I knew I would never have another chance to hunt bison unless I uh, bought the a governor's tag or a commissioner's tag. So I did that at an auction in the spring of, of 019, knowing that the tag came with a 365-day season, which mm -hmm. is extraordinary. I could only hunt five days in 019. Um, the season opened August 15th, but I had a caribou hunt planned for Alaska that I'd booked. Um, so I could only hunt five days in 019, but I never even saw a bison in five days that I spent in a little forest mine just outside the northern boundary of the Grand Canyon National Park. But I knew I'd come back in 2020 and give it my all, which I did. I spent 66 days with one 11-day break in 2020, <laughs> self-quarantining in that bison blind, knowing I wouldn't have to worry about picking up COVID from any mortals because I wasn't coming in contact with any. And uh, I spent 12 hours a day in an upright chair for 66 days and f three days before my bison tag was going to expire. The good Lord delivered a giant old bull near the end of his life. Uh, right into my lap. And when I released that arrow at him, um, he traveled exactly 18 yards from where he was standing when the arrow hit him. And within, th within 30 seconds or less, he was stone dead. And he must have weighed close to 2,000 pounds. Dennis Dunn is with us. He is a renowned barebow archery hunter, outdoor author. The book is Barebow. He's here on Hillsdale's campus as part of the Nimrod Education Center's speaker series. You're also a life member in 20-plus conservation organizations. You've given a lecture called How to Educate the Non-Hunting Public. So that's me. I'm a non-hunter, uh, much like you grew up without anyone to show you the ropes. I'm not from a hunting family. What are those things that people like me, what do we, what do we need to know? What do we need to be educated about? Well, hunting is wildlife conservation. Prior to the turn of the 19th century, when we went from the late 1800s into the 1900s, most species of North American big game were being decimated by market hunting, commercial hunting. There were no game laws. Poachers were everywhere. It wasn't even illegal to kill an animal then. Uh, there was no such thing as in season or out of season because we didn't even have uh, state game department agencies, uh, fish and wildlife agencies. It was thanks to hunters under the leadership of the most illustrious hunter to ever occupy the White House, President Teddy Roosevelt, that the Boone and Crockett uh, Club was uh, formed with some other naturalists uh, and conservationists back in 1877. By the time the new century came around, um, the state legislatures of the country were being approached by sportsmen and, and told, look, you've got to protect the resource. Uh, the American model of wildlife conservation was slow to develop conceptually, but it was always based on the, the assumption that the wild animals of North America belong to the American people, not to an individual state or not to any buddy or organization, but to the people. And even though 
the game management that came along later had to be administered at the state level or in Canada, the provincial level. It was always sportsmen that uh, were behind the drive to conserve our wildlife. Now, it's important to make the distinction between conservation and preservation. The preservationists are those like your animal rights activist groups who want to outlaw all hunting. The Sierra Club um, has been, by and large, a pre preservationist type organization. But we conservationists who understand the difference, and a lot of preservationists now are starting to come to understand that hunting plays a major role in wildlife conservation um, for a lot of reasons. But when a wildlife population, let's say pronghorn antelope in Wyoming or, or white-tailed deer in a particular state, like Long Island, New York, or wherever the deer are just overrunning things, the, the state uh, game departments can regulate the seasons. They can make them longer. They can contract them. They can close the season for a year or two if a herd gets decimated by an especially bad winter, for example. But one thing I try and educate the non-hunter about is the fact that any animal fortunate enough to be harvested by a hunter, and I use that word harvest advisedly, remember every spring a new crop of fawns or calves or lambs are born. So whether it's a new crop of apples uh, or fruit in the field, corn or whatever, animals are born every year, and the hunter is interested in harvesting meat if he needs it to feed his family, but the trophy hunter is only interested in harvesting the older bucks and bulls and whatnot that are by and large, even beyond the, the prime breeding uh, mm -hmm. age. Uh, they pass their genes on when they're, uh, I'll say a buck deer will pass on his genes when he's uh, four or five and six, but by the time he's seven or eight, his genes aren't as valuable as those of a younger, more virile buck or bull. So uh, when I tell a non-hunter, especially the anti-hunter, and I love that opportunity, uh, when I say you need to understand that any animal not fortunate enough to be harvested by a hunter will die a much more painful, agonizing, slower death. And I get blowback at first, especially from the anti-hunter who says, oh, that's not true. A lot of them starve in the winter. And I say, well, do they? Think about it. What kind of animals do the wolves, the coyotes, the bears, the lions prey upon? The weakest in the herd, the elderly, the sick, the ones that are starving to death who can't keep up with the herd. They are the ones that knock, get knocked down first and eaten alive. Well, that really opens up the eyes of the anti-hunter, and they suddenly realize that they have not been in possession of enough, enough facts to make an informed, intelligent decision on mm. such matters. You work with us here at Hillsdale. You've endowed archery scholarships here at the school. There's an archery lane at uh, John, uh, the John A. Halter Shooting Sports Education Center. Under construction, right the building now? will they'll break ground by uh, before the end of this year, and when that building is complete, it will have inside it a pistol range, an air rifle range, a rifle range, and twenty, at least twenty-four, maybe as many as twenty-eight, twenty-five-meter Olympic archery lanes. Hmm. So they'll be side by side, side by side, like in a bowling alley. Yep. Yeah. And we we have endowed one of those lanes. They're 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 pretty expensive, but uh, but we uh, we wanted to get it started, so we. We made a contribution uh, for lane number one. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about the efforts at Hillsdale and the mission of the Nimrod Education Center that convinces someone like you to be involved? Wildlife conservation has been what I've been all about my adult life, and that's why I belong to so many wildlife conservation organizations. But I don't think there's any uh, college university in the country that comes close to offering uh, its students and its community that that it, it, it is, sits at the center of what Hillsdale does, 
not just in terms of offering free education through online courses on our Constitution and the like, but no other college or university has ever taken the steps Hillsdale has in recent years um, to embrace the shooting sports and to be an education center for the same. And now they brought the, now that they brought the, the uh, Nimrod Education Center onto the campus, and it's situated right there smack dab in the middle of the Jonathan A. Halter Shooting Sports Education Center, this is a whole new um, uh, uh, front uh, in the educational world that uh, Hillsdale is pursuing. And I'm just thrilled to be a part of it because um, we're losing our country to the forces on the political left and uh, to the extent that urban life um, is falling apart, and most of our kids, unfortunately, are raised in the big cities, the close contact with nature, which is what always allows a person to connect with, um, with the good Lord and understand creation and the infinite number of, of miracles the good Lord has, has created on this planet, um, you only have a chance to appreciate those things if you are close to nature. And Hillsdale is absolutely dedicated to increasing the opportunities for its young people to engage in that kind of a, an experience with the outdoor life. Dennis Dunn, he is a renowned barebow archery hunter. Outdoor author, his book is Barebow, an archer's fair chase taking of North America's big game 29 He's here on Hillsdale's campus, part of the Nimrod Education Center speaker series. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for inviting me. More of our interviews and conversations via our website, RadioFreeHillsdale.com. Click on Student Shows and Features. And I'm Scott Bertram on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.